You can try the big knob on the bottom, Julie, and see if that helps. Testing, 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 testing. That's okay, we move the dials around. I'll just talk loud. Or do you know how to do it, Scott? Maybe as we're waiting, I'll just mention a few more items of business. So uh, we'll mention the website, but I'll need everybody's email addresses. So if you haven't been receiving the Buddhist Studies emails from previous courses, if you weren't receiving them, I should say, this last winter, that means you're not currently on the Buddhist Studies email list, which means you should put your email list when you sign in tonight, which is on the table in the lobby. Don't put your email there if you've already been receiving the Buddhist Studies emails every week or almost every week. Uh, that would just make it easier for probably Amy tomorrow to get the list updated. Amy's one of our office volunteers, among other things. So just to keep it simple, if you put your email there and, and you're already receiving it, then later tonight cross it off so she's not going to try to enter you when you're already there. And then the other piece of business is uh, Stan Johnson, who for many years has uh, helped with the recording of the talks and, and discussions and guided meditations and getting them up online for those who miss a class or want to hear it again. Uh, isn't taking the next class. So if anybody would like to volunteer, uh, Scott and I are thinking of setting it up so right after, now it's starting to work, right after the program probably, probably would take about 10 to 15 minutes, you could just upload the talk onto the uh, website. So um, if you're interested, then just let me know and uh, we can talk maybe for a few minutes with Scott right afterward. You don't need a lot of technical background, just comfortable with a computer. Scott will show you what needs to be done. Also, if you're interested in helping with program hosting, basically to help get the chairs up before the program and get set up after the yoga class, which ends just a few minutes before the class begins at 7, um, let me know and uh, we'll create a schedule for those people who are willing to do that. So tonight I'll do a general introduction to the five hindrances and uh, feel free to ask questions as I'm going along if something's not clear. And uh, hopefully we'll have a little time at the end for a more open discussion. And then next week we'll have small groups. And I'll mention what those are at the very end. So just to put the five hindrances in this context of the whole path. So as human beings, when we're not completely overwhelmed by suffering and by obligations and problems in our lives, something happens. And this is, uh, this is actually more rare than we might think, that we have 
the space in our lives to be reflective so we're not overwhelmed by poverty or we're not overwhelmed by job loss or by a breakup or by illness or you know what's going to happen with the Viking Stadium because little things can be just as overwhelming as the so-called big things you know we can get obsessed about really trivial things I'm sure you've experienced that so but when we're not obsessed or overwhelmed by something in life and the mind naturally becomes more reflective and in that more reflective space it can intuit the possibility of being really happy, really free. In Buddhist terms, the Buddha would say something like the unshakable release of the heart. Because the thing is, we already know, this isn't, doesn't depend on a powerful mystical insight, because we've already had the experience when we've been really bound up, really in a tight, narrow spot, and we've had moments when we've been relatively free, maybe not completely free, but relatively unbounded. And just that movement from being really bound up, reactive, tight, narrow states of mind, and relatively unbounded, it doesn't that beg the question, this possibility, well, if I can be relatively unbound, could this heart-mind be more and more completely, fully unbound, unshakably released, no matter the particular conditions. And I, it's not a trivial point, actually. I think without practicing opening to that possibility, holding up that possibility in any way that we can, Keeping open to the possibility of real happiness, not just getting by in life, but really being alive with love, alive with engagement and responsivity in life, free. Like, you know, our safety doesn't come from retreating, from getting in a safe spot away from the dangers, but like fully exposed and happy and alive, not happy because we're in control but a happiness that's not dependent on being in control of our health for example doesn't mean we're not taking care of the body but you know things are going to happen even if we are taking care of the body or any part of our life our jobs our families our world so this freedom in life freedom with responsibility we can can we intuit that that's a possibility? And that's really what we think of when we imagine like a saintly person. You know, hopefully we've gone beyond the point where we see, imagine the saintly person as being, you know, the person removed, sort of floating slightly above the muck and mire of the world. Because what makes them beautiful is that they're not, you know, in our situation. But that's not relevant. What we want is somebody who's beautiful with a body, with relationship, with all the confusing aspects of having a mind and body, having a life. That's the kind of saint I'm interested in seeing or imagining, right? 
So to the degree that we can intuit that, imagine that, we need to begin there, that this is a possibility. The unshakable deliverance of the heart, or freedom of the heart. And then that really starts, the reason that that's important is then it begs the question, like we maybe reflected, maybe you reflected on during the guided sit. Well, what's in the, right now, what's in the way of that release? What is in the way of this heart's, this mind's release now? How do we know right now that we're a suffering human being or that we're not really fully, completely happy? What is the actual experience that is convincing us that there's a problem with life? Or maybe there is no problem with life then what's in the way of really letting that shine? Like, if there's really not a problem, why wouldn't our love be completely free? Our love for ourselves, our love for everything, <clears throat> indiscriminate, boundless love, kindness, all the beautiful qualities, what's in the way? Because we all know that being generous and patient and loving and friendly and gentle and fearless, we all know this feels good. So what's in the way of that sort of nimbleness and uh, responsivity in our lives? And this really gets us to the reason why the Buddha has this training in the hindrances understanding the hindrances, understanding what's in the way. Because it really points out our work. Now, our work isn't to, oh, these are the bad guys. You know, how do I kill the bad guys? Although there's a lot of this kind of language in Buddhism. And you'll see it even in the Course, you know, as we read some of the more traditional sources you know, the defilements, the hindrances, the poisons, the outflows, sometimes they're called. These are the just the different ways, the unwholesome roots that the Buddha describes these, what's in the way of the full, unconditional release of the heart, unshakable release of the heart. So in a way, you know, you can use militaristic terms about defeating the enemy, if it's useful. Well, you can use other images, other ways of talking about it, if that's useful. But the idea is to go beyond what's in the way, not be confused by what's in the way. So we have, that's really what we're doing these next seven weeks, is we're, first of all, remembering the possibility of being free, however you can do that, creatively, bringing to mind this intuition, this sense, this faith, confidence in real happiness, real freedom. And then to notice what's in the way. Because, see that, however well we do at bringing up that possibility, you see how it will illuminate what's in the way. If we don't have that idea, that intuition of freedom, we're not going to notice what's in the way. If our basic idea is that life is drudgery, well, we're not going to be very clear about the drudgery because it just, it's just what we expect. 
it doesn't, it's not going to stand out as something we can open to or see with wisdom because it's just the way life is. But once we have a sense, an intuitive sense of freedom or happiness or unbounded love, indiscriminate love, ease, then all of a sudden it becomes very clear what's in the way. Because we say, well, that's not it. That's not what I was just imagining. You know, when, when we experience uh, in a moment with our friend or a partner a real sense of just a natural upwelling of the heart and wishing well for the person, that natural generosity, wanting to take care, wanting that person to be happy, but not in a neurotic way. It doesn't it make it so clear when a few seconds later the mind is neurotic, feeling needy, wanting revenge, wanting to show that person how stupid they are. It just becomes so clear how that is a bounded state, a bound up state, a heavy state. And we really start to get clear like, oh, this is unnecessary. This is suffering. This needs to be understood. It really helps us understand what our work is. So one of the more famous statements from the Buddha, most of you know some version of it, and I think it's good to memorize this particular statement. So one variation is, the mind is radiant and pure. It is only obscured by visiting defilements. So the mind is radiant. Radiant sometimes is code for it's the mind naturally knows. It's naturally awake or naturally knowing how it is. That's the radiant, you know, like light is radiant, light illuminates. So the mind naturally and effortlessly knows. So it's radiant and pure is Buddhist code for empty. So it's pure, meaning that that knowing, that effortless knowing, can't be grasped or pointed to even. It's pure. It doesn't have a center to it. So the mind is radiant, right? Because this is just obvious. The mind is knowing. And we can't shut it off. I mean, we can dull or obscure the knowing mind by getting obsessed or taking drugs or going to sleep, but don't don't really shut it off. There's really no way. I mean, even when we're dreaming or sleeping, knowing is happening. It's just we're not, in a sense, conscious of the knowing process. That's why, you know, there are people, I don't know if it's true, you know, that can bring you back to the time you were born, right? So you can do it right. You can sort of redo whatever trauma you might have experienced. Because somehow the mind was sensitive even then. Just because we can't access it consciously now doesn't mean the mind wasn't knowing or there wasn't knowing happening. So the mind is radiant and pure It is only obscure, this radiance, this purity, the beauty, the essential freedom 
of the mind can only be obscured by visiting defilements. And that, just reflecting on the statement, this is why I think it's worthy of memorizing. The thing about practice is it only works when practice is coming from right view. It's this terrible or oppressive chicken and egg problem. Like, we can't really practice effectively unless we understand to some degree how to practice effectively. So it doesn't actually uh, mean we're doing any good just because we're practicing. The only practice that's of value is practice that to some degree is coming from right view. Otherwise, in a sense, we're spinning our wheel. So for example, I could be really attached about being a good meditator or really afraid of wasting my life. And those could be my motivations to do this practice. But a practice that's entirely coming out of fear or entirely coming out of greed isn't doing any good. It's literally reinforcing the problem. So that's why we have to understand this statement. The mind is essentially pure and radiant. It's essentially free. But this freedom is obscured by visiting defilements. And that's what I suggested in the guided meditation too. Like when we notice something arising, something has an appearance in the moment, like there's fear or there's pain in the body and there's not liking the pain in the body or there's sleepiness in the mind, dullness in the mind. There's doubt, like what is he talking about? What is, what am I doing? then if we understand that that doubt is just a visiting defilement, our attitude, the way we'll relate to the doubt or to the aversion or to the craving will be different than if we immediately identify with the hindrance. So the thing about the hindrance that makes it a hindrance, it's not just the doubt or just the craving or just the aversion but it's the identification with it that makes it a hindrance, that actually makes it obscuring or causes it to obscure the essential nature of the mind, the freedom, the essential freedom of the mind. Anger in and of itself isn't a problem, it's just another phenomenon. Aversion, um, greed, dullness, restlessness and doubt or any of the things that appear to be problems are only problems as long as the mind is taking it to be something that it actually isn't. When we take objects, you know, the problems of our life, the problems in the moment, when we take them personally, then they are truly, in that moment, problems. But the problem is the taking, is the misunderstanding of what's arising in the mind. That's the problem. And this is, you know, this should be challenging to us because it seems like there's really problems. And that's why I began the talk by, uh, you know, challenging all of us that the happiness, the unshakable release we want is 
in this embodied state with responsibilities, with insecurity, with a mind that's conditioned like the way our mind is conditioned, you know, with all the ways that we get triggered. So with these conditions, is there still freedom or has it been ruined? You know, and it isn't until we suffer that we'll sort of deserve the essential freedom of the mind. So we have to really look with our view because we've been conditioned in all kinds of subtle ways, ways that we we should just assume we don't understand how strongly, deeply, cleverly the mind has been conditioned to think that we deserve to be unhappy in different ways. We should be afraid. We should be uh, feel betrayed by life or feel guilty about what we've done. We should have resentments that uh, we, you know, people, for example, that don't deserve to be forgiven because of what they've done to us or the, you know, the so-called idiots who are running the world. <laughs> you know, don't, they, they deserve our, you know, and then whatever emotion you have about them. So basically, we have a lot of confidence that we, this heart should be bound up, should be tight. And, it, and it's unquestioned. So as long as that confidence and that we should be bound up, things should be tight, we're not really going to be able to see clearly to do this investigation. Because even when, even if we hear the instructions and we start, like we get really good at naming the different hindrances that arise, so when we're angry, we're noting, oh yeah, the mind's angry. Or when we're greedy or craving, we note, oh yeah, the mind's craving, wanting, wanting. When we're sleepy, we're noting there's sleepiness. When we're restless, too much energy, we're noting that. When there's doubt, we're noting that. The thing is, it's not enough to know that there's anger in the mind. It's the, trans, the thing that allows for the transformation is when, that, when we look at the anger or any of the defilements, any of the hindrances, there has to be a turning of the mind so that the eyes that are seeing the anger aren't confused by it, aren't taking it personally, aren't identified with it. We have to see anger as just a natural phenomenon, a present moment happening, independent of it being a personal problem for me. We have to drop that view that it's a personal problem, this pain, this disturbance, and we have to see it as it actually is in the moment. Because I can tell you from my personal experience, and I bet a lot of you can do the same, that you can note or be mindful of, so-called mindful of, hindrances, disturbing states of mind forever and they won't necessarily be transformed. And you might sort of get to the place where you know you're being oppressed by this hindrance but you're not sort of acting it out as much as you might have in the past. But that's not a full liberation. It's like a standoff. Like I'm not going to make a bigger mess 
than I'm already in. <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm not really willing to let go of my attachment to the idea that you're a problem. This anger is a problem. This dullness is a problem. This restlessness is a problem. This doubt is a problem for me. This craving, desire is a problem for me. Where we have so much confidence in that view that we'd rather stick with that view than experiment with a more open attention, which is what we mean, actually mean by being mindful. And mindfulness always, I mean, we don't always say it this way, but in the teachings, in the Buddhist teachings, you know, it almost always is tied with wisdom. It's not just paying attention, it's paying attention with wisdom. Wise attention is a good way. And so now in the West, you know, we call this a mindfulness center. Sometimes, you know, we refer to this as a mindfulness center. But what we really mean is this is a center where we are training and bringing wise attention to the present moment. That's really what we're doing. We're bringing wise attention as often as we can, moment by moment, bringing wise attention to the way it actually is. So if the way it actually is is that there's a lot of freedom, then we're bringing wise attention to that sense of freedom to see if that freedom is complete. And if it's really complete, then the mind, the wise, wisely attending mind knows this freedom is really complete. And if it's not complete, then we look at what's in the way of a fully released, happy, loving mind or heart. And you see, this is the real beauty of the path the Buddha laid out because it just makes so much sense. If we want to be happy, we should directly practice happiness. If we want to be peaceful or loving, we have to directly practice it. And to practice it, you know, if we're already loving, then we are mindful of that being loving. And as we open to that, we'll see the limitations of it. And then we look at the limitations. Oh. What is this limitation, actually? If I bring a fresh, wise attention to this hindrance, to what's in the way of being fully loving, fully awake, fully free, fully alive, what is this? Is it self or not self? And there's this you know, beautiful work we do. And this is the amazing thing that even before there, you know, we're a saint, we have moments of saintliness by this turning, by this transformation. So first, let's say we're angry, and then we have a sense we're angry, but we still are taking the anger personal, personally rather. So there's, first we're just angry and we're blind to being angry. Then we're angry and we know we're angry but we're identified with the anger being a problem. We don't want to be angry. We want to be done with it. But hating the anger we've discovered doesn't work. Denying the anger doesn't work. So, and we've heard the, the teachings enough times that we're in this patient place now and we're experimenting with acceptance and clarity. You know, there's no clarity without acceptance. And if there's not perfect clarity, it's just because we haven't fully accepted the way it actually is. Anger's like this. And that, be- that beginning, that turning, there's a moment of saintliness when the mind no longer identifies with the anger 
or with the doubt or with the sleepiness or with the restlessness or with the cra- uh, craving or wanting. There is a taste of real freedom because in that simple moment of making peace with the anger, not taking it personally, but just seeing, oh, there's anger, it's like this. On some level, the mind, it may be just very subtle, but the mind is generalizing that movement, the not reacting to the hindrance, and it's intuitively getting the sense that, oh, I don't have to react to any of the defilements, any of the hindrances. So every time we have a little moment of accepting what a moment ago was unacceptable, there's a, the mind, this is the nature of the mind. Because the mind isn't sort of a thing with a control center and marked behind the control center, that's not really the way the mind is. The mind is this interdependent web. There is no center to it. Like, I don't really understand holograms, but I understand holograms are the same way. It's like every bit of the hologram contains all the information. So this is a sort of a metaphor for the mind. So when the mind does something like accept, don't react, but accepts the anger as a present moment phenomenon, that's just this, then it understands something about everything. And it gets a whiff of saintliness or freedom. So these are not small moments, whether we're doing it in a set or just out in our daily life and we're feeling sleepy and dull and we completely identified with being the person who's sleepy and dull and it's a problem in my life because I've got a meeting I've got to go to and then after that, I, and we're suffering. We're bound up in the experience of being dull and identified with being dull and sleepy. And then a moment of mindfulness with wise attention arises and there's a little transformation right there, a little breath of freedom. And the whole world, really, the whole world shakes a little bit. And I think we're all affected each time somebody does this. Somebody wakes up and there's a moment in that mind of liberation and because there's actually no separation as we imagine, there's some reverberation everywhere. Unfortunately, it goes the other way. Every time, this is the depressing side. (laughs) You know, every time one of us is confused by these unwholesome states, takes it personally, that sense of things being set and locked up, bound up, becomes a little bit more seductive, more convincing. But this is the good motivation, right? Like we're not just doing it for our own transformation, our own freedom, but we're really supporting each other in this work. This Buddha has, you know, he taught for 45 years. He has so many powerful metaphors about this. This is one, there's a wonderful book. I was thinking for those of you who are in the Sutta study group, I was thinking someday we should read this book. It's one of Ajahn uh, Tanisaro's books, uh, Mind Like Fire Unbound. He's, that refers to a very common simile the Buddha used for Nibbana. 
Some of you know that the word nirvana or nibbana means cessation, like a fire going out. And the excuse me, the idea at the time, the way they understood fire before they had sort of modern science, is that fire is an inherent potentiality. So it may go out, like when there's no fuel, the fire goes out, but the possibility of fire is everywhere always. And it just needs the right conditions before it will arise. Maybe this is actually accurate. But in any case, so fire or mind like fire unbound. So when it's fire gets unbound, when we have a particular experience of fire, it's bound to the fuel. It's in a sense tied up with the wood that's burning. But when that wood burns out, there's no more fuel, that potentiality is still there, but it's not bound to any aspect of reality. It's free or unbound. And so you can get a sense of this image for the mind. When the mind identifies, like with the hindrance, like with anger or greed, then the mind is fire that's bound, it's fixed upon the fuel. And so the Buddha has this one particular uh, teaching. He says, just as a great mass of fire of 10, 20, 30, or 40 cartloads of timber were burning, and into it a person would periodically throw dry grass, dried cow dung, dry timber, so that the great mass of fire thus nourished, thus sustained, would burn for a long, long time. Even so, practitioners, and one who keeps focusing on the allure of those phenomena that offer sustenance, and literally the word sustenance here is flammable phenomena, right? So that's, that's the word the Buddha uses. He used this image of fire quite a bit in his teachings. So this is like when we're relating to the anger, whether we're relating, like bringing to mind the object of our anger, the person that's upsetting us, or the feeling of anger itself, the heat in the mind and body, the tightness in the mind and body, or the ideas of what we'd like to do to that person. So whatever aspect of that process, that fiery process of anger we bring to mind, that is that... uh, you know, that nourishment, you know, how we're focusing on the allure of those phenomena that offer sustenance, flammable phenomena. Craving develops. With craving as a condition, sustenance. With sustenance as a condition, becoming. With becoming as a condition, birth. Birth as a condition, aging, illness and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair all come into play. So this is Buddhist code for the cycles of suffering. The ongoing nature, how suffering leads on to more suffering. Because of this tendency, the way the mind is, the process the mind is involved with is adding fuel to the experience of being bound up. It's a tightening process, an entangling and tightening process. Thus is the origin of the entire mass of suffering and stress. Just as as if a great mass of fire were burning, into which a person simply would not periodically throw dry grass, dry cow dung, or dry timber, so that the great mass of fire 
its original sustenance being consumed, and no other being offered would, without nourishment, go out. Now see, this is really important because when we start to do that turning, there's anger in the mind. The mind's been you know, caught in the allure of the anger, the allure of the person we're angry at, the allure of the painful sensations of the anger in the body and mind. These things are seductive. They pull us in, they cause the mind to get entangled. But when we have some wisdom, wise attention, that fire is going to burn for a while. That person that we're angry at, that image or thought of that person is still going to be uh, hot, still going to be seductive. The painful feelings, the, you know, how even though we're not feeding the fire, we're still going to feel the tension of having been obsessed with anger for 20 minutes or two days. So that's still that tightness, that entanglement in body, energetically, emotionally, doesn't disappear. But by not feeding it, the flames die down. And after a while, it's not so bad. One of the things that really is compelling is when you're on a longer retreat or the mind is just more settled down. And then because one of the side effects of the mind settling down is it gets very energized because it's not going here and there, worrying about this, reacting to that. And so the energy of the mind just builds up. So then when it does get caught, some memory or some experience triggers some uh, one of the hindrances, one of the unwholesome emotional patterns. Then with all that energy, the mind can really go with it. You know, because it, it's like it's able to imagine how much it hates that person with living color, so much mental juice that it's all the more compelling. And so, even in five minutes of obsessing about something you really want or something somebody you really hate, and then all of a sudden, because you've been practicing, you see it and you stop feeding it. But you really see, in that clarity, you really see the mess that the mind could create in just a few minutes or even a few seconds, literally. 10 seconds, 15 seconds. You can feel the reverberation. I've seen this, like in a sit where the mind's really quiet, and then I lose my mindfulness, and I'll get lost in some one of my dramas. And often, you, you probably have experienced this, when the mind gets really quiet, it's like a vacuum. And in that stillness, that quietness of mind, that vacuum, it's, it like calls up unfinished business from the depths, you know? And that unfinished pain. Like one of the funny stories, I mean, I've had my share, I could share too, but one, one that just came to mind is Joseph Goldstein talks about in the middle of a long retreat, this terrible pain that came up. I mean, really terrible pain. Uh, somebody had their sweet 16 birthday party, a girl who liked Joseph, and he was about the same age, and uh, she invited him to her sweet 16 party. And he, I forget exactly how the story goes, but he had somehow said to her that he was going to go, but didn't end up going. And evidently it was really painful for her. You know, and then life goes on, and you just you know, a 16-year-old person doesn't think too much about that. 
But in the midst of a long retreat, when the mind is very still, experiencing a lot of stillness, any of those old painful events will come to the surface. And then if we that when that pain comes, if we take it personally, then we'll spin, right? Like feel guilty about it. I'm not saying we shouldn't feel the pain. We should feel the pain, but we don't need to take the pain personally. We can just let it move through the body and mind. But if we take it personally, then we can, you know, and then we might think, remember all the other evidence we have of being a jerk. And all the other stupid things we've done, all the other times we've been really hurtful for other people. And then, and then maybe that only lasts 45 seconds. But there we are, we see how much, because the body knows how to take back up that whole, like it has a body memory. The body knows how to get really tight. So even though it might have taken us nine days of a retreat practice or three months of retreat practice to sort of let go of that, a lot of that holding, we can pick it up in three seconds. And then all of a sudden, that body memory has been triggered, that emotional memory has been triggered. And then, even though we're mindful again, wisdom and mindfulness is back present, it will take some time for that letting go to happen again. So we have to practice being in the pain of it, but not taking it personally. And that's this, what the, the Buddha is saying here. Whatever desire... Oh, where was... Um, so that the great mass of fire, its original sustenance being consumed and no longer being offered, would, without nourishment, go out. Even so, practitioners, in one who keeps focusing on the drawbacks of those phenomena that offer sustenance, craving stops. From the stopping of craving, sustenance stops. From the stopping of sustenance, becoming, birth, aging, illness and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair all stop. Thus is the stopping of the entire mass of suffering and stress. So the Buddha gives us a hint here. He says, keeps focusing on the drawbacks of those phenomena. So here we are, just going back to that example with anger, but you can just substitute, and for our homework this week, one of the things you want to do is really get a sense for you and the way this mind, your mind is conditioned. What are the common, the most common hindrances that arise? Is it some aspect of greed or wanting? Some aspect of fear or aversion or hatred, irritation? Some aspect of doubting? or dullness, or restlessness, anxiety, worrying. So just to get a sense. So there you are. You're blind to it. You're just acting it out blindly. Then, maybe because of the pain as such, you become aware that you're caught in the defilement, in the hindrance. So there's a, But you're still taking it personally. right? It, it's like I'm full of doubt. I don't want to be. What can I do? And then at that point, you remember the teachings, which is to be mindful, wise and mindful. It's just 
doubt, it's just anger. You just start to experience that, that freedom of being mindful. That the, it's the freedom to feel the pain of the mind state instead of the ignorance and the suffering involved in resisting it or denying it or struggling with it. It's, in a sense, letting the pain, because it's still there, it's not going to disappear immediately, letting the pain move through, letting the pain move. So that's, that's the deep intuition. It really, the realization that I don't need to be afraid of this pain. I don't need to take it personally. This is, it's the not seeing this that keeps us reacting to anger, reacting to doubt, reacting to craving with more tension with more reactivity because we keep missing that we don't need to be afraid of it we don't need to resist the pain of it we can be mindful of it wisely aware that it hurts like this being angry hurts like this being caught in doubt hurts like this desiring, wanting hurts like this being caught with dullness hurts like this being trapped or caught in restlessness hurts like this. And feel free to use a phrase like this from time to time to help clarify the mind. Oh, it hurts like this. That's like a, a little shaking of the earth. You know, everybody benefits when we're willing to open with wisdom to these states. And then in that opening, we have to, this is that statement the Buddha says, would, without nourishment, go out. Even so, practitioners, and one who keeps focusing on the drawbacks of those phenomena that offer sustenance, keeps focusing on the drawbacks of those phenomena that offer sustenance. So there I am, feeling opening to the pain of the anger, right? Because it's my heart's bound up, my body's bound up, because I've been obsessing with my anger for several minutes. And then that pain is going to, as long as there's pain, entanglement, it's going to keep triggering the impulse, the tendency to react by being angry, by getting tight. But I'm going to keep noticing that that impulse to take it personally, that that's the sustenance, you know, so we keep focusing on the drawbacks of those phenomena that offer sustenance. So the phenomena of taking this pain personally, I keep seeing the drawbacks, how that doesn't help, honey. It doesn't help to take the pain of this anger personally. It doesn't help to take the anger of the craving personally. It doesn't help to take the pain of the doubt or the pain of the dullness or the pain of the restlessness personally. We have to keep seeing that or we're going to take it personally. So one of the things you'll notice, I mean, I practice in this place all the time. So I even, you know, now in my 30th year of practice, I still, this is a big part of what I have to do is like uh, kind of taking it personally. You know, I'm throwing fuel back on the fire. And then in moments realizing, that's ridiculous. Why do that? Out of compassion, not judgment, just, honey, why? Why 
or you identifying. You know better. And then we lose it. We lose the clarity that does know better. Because wisdom is impersonal. There is nobody controlling wisdom. When the conditions are ripe, there's wisdom, and wisdom knows better. Don't identify with this pain. And when wisdom isn't ripe and the conditions aren't there, we don't realize that identifying with it is stupid. So we take the pain personally and we react. Because, the, because we're hurting, we feel this person really has been mean to us. They really do deserve the resentment. I should think about how much they deserve punishment for what they did to me. And maybe I should be part of the punishment they deserve. <laughs> Even though it's entangling the heart, it's bounding up the heart again. So we're going to end up this work with the hindrances. A lot of the work is in this really painful place where we're aware of the damage that the identification has brought, but we can't completely transform it. There's just not enough stability and not enough wisdom and stability of attention. And you really start to respect the need for calm in life because the more calm there is, the easier it is to do this work and the easier it is to stop throwing fuel into the fire, which we can do endlessly. And you know, the Buddha has very powerful images of how long we've been throwing fuel in the fire. Heartbreaking. You know, like one of them is uh, the tears we've shed from life to life What's greater, you know, the tears we've shed are all the water in the four great oceans. And the Buddha says, you know, the tears we've shed is greater than all the water in the four great oceans. I mean, just imagine if that's in fact true, that the, the heart being unwilling to be with the pain, the residual pain of having taken things personally, our unwillingness to be with that pain has caused us to re-identify over and over again with this process of being. Setting in motion more entanglement, more pain, more identification with the pain. And this is the samsara. So to turn the corner, we have to intuit that freedom is possible. We have to see what's in the way. And in seeing what's in the way, we have to be willing to accept the pain of the mind having been unskillful. The movement towards skillfulness is the willingness to accept the pain of having been unskillful. Just because now we're being skillful doesn't mean the pain goes away. We have to accept the pain of what's been set in motion because things have already been set in motion. Now, the more we do that, the more the transformation happens very quickly. Because although there's leftover pain, that leftover pain can also be seen as being impersonal. But initially, it won't be that way. But when you have momentum, that, will have, that turning can happen very quickly. But in the beginning, there's a lot of place where we're being patient with the pain, but it's still painful. It still feels like it's, it's hurting me, hurting this heart. So next week we'll have small groups and uh, I'll explain the dynamic of the small group but the point here is that 
when you're doing your formal practice and your informal practice, when you're reading some of the teachings that I'll send out, the readings that I'll send out, or just reflecting on what I've said tonight during the week, you're going to have, there's going to be some fruit from your practice and from your reflections. And you might want to jot it down or just make a point of remembering it. So next week at the end, we'll save the last half an hour, we'll break up into random groups of three, and you'll have three minutes or so just to speak from your heart about what you've learned, what's been problematic, what's been really fruitful, what you seem to have some clarity about, what seems confusing to you. And you're just going to have that time to speak from your heart to the three people. And it's really a way of contributing to the whole group and to those particular two people you're meeting with. So do your practice as best you can, you know, with as much sincerity and interest and creativity and fearlessness that you can bring to your practice. And remember to do things that you don't always do. Don't just do what you always do. I mean, the whole point of the class is to do different things. I mean, if some things are really working, keep doing those, but do some other things. Use the teachings or what you hear from other people or what you've heard from me and let it inform your practice and and experiment a little bit so that you're seeing things you haven't seen before taking steps, challenging the mind in ways you haven't challenged it before. And then bring it back in the small groups and then on the alternate weeks we'll have time for, not tonight, but time for large group discussions too. And uh, your experiences can help all of us. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Appreciate being here together. to sit right in the middle of everything. Bringing this loving and wise attention to the way that it is now. And because we care about this life, and because we care about others who have a mind and body, have a life as we have a life. We are inspired to do the best we can to awaken, to awaken compassion and wisdom for the benefit of all. Please remember to sign in and to leave your email address. Remember to connect with me or Scott If you're interested in uh, helping with the recordings every week, it takes about 15 or 20 minutes. And you can also let me know if you're willing to be one of the program hosts. So one of the things we always want to do is straighten the cushions, brush them off. All the folding chairs go down the stairs to the right and to the right. And that way the place will be all set for the morning set. See everybody next Monday.